Hello and welcome to Talking HE. My name is Santanu Vasant. In this episode, we speak to Satvinder Samra, a senior university lecturer and director of collaborative practice at Sheffield University's School of Architecture. We discuss the Earn as You Learn architecture course, what collaborative practice actually means in the context of architecture, and how this course is widening access and participation for all students. We hope you enjoy this episode. Um, my name is Satwinder Samra. I'm a Director of Collaborative Practice at the University of Sheffield School of Architecture. Uh, I'm also a collaborator with William Matthews Associates. And sometimes you can catch me on um, CBBC's The Dengineers as, a, as an on-screen designer with Tony Broomhead. Thank you, Satwinder, for your time today. I wanted to know a little bit more about this Architecture Earn As You Learn course. Yes, of course. Um, we were um, concerned um, about the introduction of, of, of the higher fee uh, because, as, as we know, architecture is quite a long course. The minimum is seven years to full qualification. And um, when students have done three years, they get a degree and then they work for a year and then they do another two years of master's uh, and then they do another year of vocational training before they can sit their professional exams. And we were worried that students might get to the end of the of the three years and then really seriously uh, consider whether they should continue uh, another two years in education and, and, and rack up more debt. So mm. one of the things we were concerned about was um, affordability uh, and also um, architectural education um, is, qu- is quite repetitive at times, it's quite long, it's quite arduous and, and it's very expensive and so we want to see if we could join up the worlds of the, the academy and, and practice to, to come up with a new model. And that's where we, we came up with collaborative practice. And what have been some of the um, positives um, of, of coming up with this model? Um, the, the, the positives, uh, 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 there's been quite a few things that have come, come through this. One is that um, students uh, are already uh, working for a year and they're able to work for another year. So the, the first year, of, of the masters is, is is a kind of joined up model where students work in practice four days a week and the fifth day is for academic learning and support and what that means is that students are earning a salary um, which obviously is very very helpful but also they are um, able to capture some of the work that they do in practice so what we're doing is we're saying if they're working on a school or they're working um, you know, on a housing project, what we're asking them to do is try and understand how that project came to life, what were the political, social and economic factors uh, that allowed that design to come into the world. And then we ask them to come up with an alternative brief. So often um, in schools of architecture, they might be going sort of working from a standing start, but here they've got some um, uh, practice content that gives them a kind of a springboard to Mm. then reflect on the processes of design within practice and then think about what their own processes or their own ways of working might be and that that then becomes live academic content 
um, which which is good. And the the other thing has been we've we've we thought really carefully about time and how how much time do students spend doing things and and and, and often. Um, quite a lot of time is taken up with thinking about doing something or thinking about what you should do next. Whereas here, because the time is a bit more limited, we have very sort of precise conversations about the kind of academic work that they might do, but also how do they make design decisions and how do they decide what drawing they're going to do and in what order. So I think that's been a real, real benefit as well. And then the other thing is we, we started off with a, a small network of alumni practices to help us support um, uh, the, the program when we were trying to set it up and we had six mm. uh, yeah. and over time this has really expanded and we've now got over 40 leading um, UK practices on board as part of our network. Wow that's a lot of lot of practices there yes. um, that you've got yeah that's really really great that you've you've kind of brought the industry into the into this world um, and um, and got them collaborating in this yes. way. Um, that's a really nice, a great positive. Um, what have been some of the challenges, would you say, with with, with doing this? Um, so I suppose if we, we we just sort of go back to actually setting up the course, uh, the first thing was that there was um, there were some voices that felt that perhaps why do we need to do this? You know, architecture education is fine. It's been going along quite well for, for a while, but I think the real real desire from students to have a different kind of way of learning and students I I think should have choice or they should have options about how they might want to learn and where they might be yeah. physically located and also because it's expensive um, uh, how can they earn money as they go along and that should be part of the process rather than being something that they do in their own time. Um, so change, change was one thing. The other thing was um, Obviously, and, you, and you'll understand what I mean by this, when you when you design something new within a university setting, there's quite a lot of processes and governance that you have to kind of go through. And um, with um, a colleague of mine, um, Alex, we um, we spent quite a lot of time working out not just the design of the course, but also the learning hours and the learning outcomes. We did some quite smart drawings that helped us to map um, the different aspects of the course and help us to better understand it. But essentially, we were taking a course that already existed and then we were trying to think about a different way of delivering it. And in essence, we designed two new modules. Um, one was called um, a Reflective Design Practice, where students are looking at a project in practice, as I've already mentioned. And the other one was a something we called a Reflective Journal, where they're looking at the everyday occurrences of practice and we're giving them an academic lens to better understand What's, what's going on in business. Um, we also had to get approval from the professional bodies from the RIBA and the ARB, and again, quite extensive um, sort of processes that, that we had to go through. And, and we were fortunate to get, um, well, we weren't fortunate, we worked really hard, um, but we, we um, got approval for the course at the same time as um, while we were trying to recruit um, but I think the biggest challenge was essentially around trying to convince people that this was a good idea because it was slightly different. But essentially what we were doing, we were um, sort of breaking this model or this idea that you have to be physically present in a in a building called a university to get high quality university teaching. Because I, I uh, really believe that 
if you have the right people in the space and you have a joined upness and you put the student at the centre of the learning and they're supported by a leading practice and they are, um, you know, offered kind of high quality teaching, then that, that will mean a more productive and po- positive journey for the student. Yes, exactly. I absolutely agree. So how do you teach this course? Is it mainly face-to-face, blended, online? Yeah, that's a great question. So if I talk about a pre-COVID situation, we use online tools. Initially, we used to use Skype. And then obviously there's um, the support systems that are within the university as well. So um, every Friday we have a different kind of learning. So sometimes we will have uh, digital tutorials. Um, sometimes we would be in London, maybe once a month, where we would meet up, you know, one of our practices, use one of their meeting rooms. And that was really lovely because students get to see different practices in, in physical space. Students would also return to Sheffield, but only between four and six times in the whole year, because each time they come back to Sheffield, it costs time and money. In a kind of uh, COVID situation, we've carried on to deliver uh, the, the course because the students are still working and we we can still uh, connect with them digitally. Um, and in a sense, the course was kind of COVID proof before we had COVID. So us kind of sequencing into a COVID situation has been fairly smooth. I think part of that's because the students who've signed up to this program are ready for and really desire a different kind of learning as opposed to a standard model where students are physically present in what we might call a studio day in day out. So what is the typical sort of demographic of your of your architecture students? Um, on this course it's, it's pretty mixed. What we found is that we have attracted students who um, Number one, want a different kind of learning. Um, I'd also say they're a bit more perhaps pioneering because um, they, they they want to do something that's a little bit different and has a, has a slightly different flavour to it. Um, and also we found that for some students, this model means that they can actually do a, a, a master's programme, whereas the standard programme would be financially restrictive for them. So we've kind of opened the door then and and that's pretty fundamental really because um, Mm. we want to make sure that courses are more exclusive sorry less exclusive um, and in doing so they become more diverse because you're 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 allowing people who might otherwise be restricted because of financial scenarios um, to continue on to on to full um, full education full full qualification yeah yeah that's really important um, what what would be some of your um, tips for um, others thinking of doing this in other universities? Well, the first thing is probably to give me a ring and we can offer some advice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, seriously, though, um, I think the first thing would be uh, that you probably need to try and understand um, what the real um, sort of agendas or the drive is within your current institution. And then to find people, you need to find friends within the institution who um, are open to a conversation about a different kind of learning. And I know that in institutions across the globe, um, this kind of conversation that we're having is very current and even more current, uh, given the current situation. Um, I also think you, one thing I would avoid is just taking the existing modules that you have and just sort of um, delivering them in in the same way you might need to design some new modules 
and and I think the, the, the one of the great things is the, the internet is so powerful and um, if you can allow students to have flexibility and you can allow them to um, be included but without feeling that they have to be, always be physically or even digitally present you know the record tool or the tool of being able to play things back in your own time which is different to a live session is is, is, that, is really really empowering the other thing i think is important is perhaps thinking about how you're going to express what you do to others um when, when we set up the course um, people said, you know, well, surely these students are going to be guinea pigs. And we said, no, the, the, these students are pioneers. So the language that we use mm. to help people to understand what it is you're doing and why it's a good thing is is, is important as well. Uh, we also got some great support from some wonderful graphic designers called Peter and Paul, which is a, a wonderful studio in Sheffield. And they did a little logo for us um, at the time. So I'm talking about 2015. I got onto Twitter. So it's all about trying to get get the message out there to say that we were doing something a little bit different mm. and, and i think the proof of the pudding has been that we've we, we've had uh, you know really good applications but also um i think conventional architectural education is 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 a little bit out of date and i think there really is a desire from definitely from the student body to have different kinds of models available and i think this is this go, this isn't about part-time learning this is about engaged learning join students with each other but also allowing them to um, reflect on their own experiences um, so that they feel empowered um, by their own work rather than being just the receivers of a kind of or passive receivers of knowledge they're you know how do you encourage them to become active and and have and become confident in having their own voice and formulating their own opinions as well from your knowledge and experience, how do you see the campus evolving as we think of a post-COVID or living with COVID world? I think that the the future of the campus is is on one level is 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 good because <clears throat> there's still a desire for um, that kind of physical engagement, whether it's um, educational or social, and, and universities do offer that in in leaps and bounds. The area that I think is, is ripe for development is um, how do you allow students to engage in their learning in different ways, which isn't just based on the physical space. Um, sort of social spaces are important, but I also think that the technology um, is there. And I often say, you know, wouldn't it be fascinating if we could have a physical space that feels a digital space that feels like a physical space mm. um, and, and vice versa? I think the challenges come when you're trying to mix the two in the same in the same space. So say if you've got five people in a meeting and they're in a physical space and other people are coming in digitally, yeah. that's where the nuance or the the protocols perhaps need to change a little bit. And and, and you know, as I mentioned before, pe- people don't really like change. But ultimately, I think if we embrace the changes that are that are possible, because there is definitely a desire from the student body, I believe. Um, we we can sort of lead in this space, but ultimately, what's important is that the people who want to learn are able to learn, but they're not restricted uh, because of financial um, obstacles or physical obstacles, because they've got to, you know, they, they 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 perhaps their need to be in a different physical space because of, you know, they might have caring responsibilities or they might not be able to afford to live in student accommodation. 
well, you know, if we open things up, I think that will always work to the benefit of the of the of the institution uh, fundamentally. So, a final question: What's one thing you'd tell your past self about this "Earn as You Learn" architecture course? That's a great question. I think I'd probably say to myself, "It's going to be okay. Stick at it, and and keep finding kind of like-minded colleagues, and also not to be too worried if." If if people um, don't are not on board, because you'll always find people who are on board. That that would be one thing. And I think the other thing would be just stick with it. Stick with it. And what's been fascinating with with this program is that there are now other providers who are providing similar courses but different to ours. To the point where the, they're using the words collaborative practice, and and that for me is absolutely wonderful. That that it's becoming a kind of terminology which is seen as delivering this kind of model and, and that really is, is is a good thing and I think the, the the beauty of the course is that it could easily be replicated in other disciplines that have vocational aspects to the course because what we're saying to students is yeah. to take take from uh, the everyday and bring it into an academic setting and so I could see this happening in you know the modules that we've designed could easily be used as a way of getting reflective learning uh, or that idea of um, taking from your everyday experience. Because I think one of the big, big, big issues is that the, the world of practice or the world of delivery or work often is separate from the academic institution. And I'm always fascinated about how we get the two to join together, because ultimately for students, that will be their future trajectory. Thank you to Satvinder Samra for his time today. Coming up next time on Talking HE, we speak to Dr. Graham Holden, independent consultant and researcher and former director of learning and teaching at Sheffield Hallam University about narrative and impact. A preview coming up. Hello, yeah, I'm Graham Holden. I used to be director of learning and teaching at Sheffield Hallam University up until two years ago. Since then, I've been working as a consultant, higher education consultant. And as part of that, I've been working with an organisation called Invisible Grail, which is a collective of writers and HE professionals. And we use uh, storytelling and writing as ways of helping individuals, organisations, institutions capture their stories and tell their stories at their best. We tell a story, and I kind of told you a bit of story when I opened, didn't I, about mm. where I was and where I've been. And you could beginning to get something about me. There was a little bit of story. And, and so we're all natural storytellers. It's how we make sense. Um, it was an anthropologist, Mary Catherine Bateson, uh, describes as being all in the act of creation and in, in the process of composing our lives whether that be personally or professionally. Mm. And so it's a big part of who we are and what we do, these stories that we tell. Narrative, as my writing colleagues at Invisible Grail once told me at one of our sessions, is just a posh way of saying story, really. Because uh, narrative is probably one of the most overused words in the English language at the moment. All that and more in the next episode of Talking HE. If you have any thoughts, comments, or would like us to cover a topic, please tweet us at TalkingHEPod. Thanks for listening. I've been Santinivasant, and this has been Talking HE.